as far as the Texas shooting, uh, again, um, this is where the water's going to get a little deep. Um, my condolences, obviously, to all the families. Uh, I, I sent out a post where I said, uh, thoughts and prayers do nothing. We have nothing. to do something now. Absolutely. Um, and that's why I didn't want to necessarily, when we were talking about the guy in the wheelchair the, and, the, and getting out of jail and, the, and dying and all that, this is the ongoing struggle that I have with religion and God mm -hmm. because, and I said in my post, and I'll try to give you the cliff notes, for 400 years we've been praying. Uh, oh my Lord, one day God gonna, and then when it happens, 400 years later, late, we give credit to God. Well, I go, well, change is inevitable. That's life. So I don't know that that's credited to God. And then, well, my confusion with black people, and this is a conversation we so don't want to have, because like Richard Pryor said, black folks, we tight with God. You know, for 400 years from rape and lynchings and castrations Man. and burnings and uh, stripped of identity and sold off in separation from our families, we've been praying for no answer. And then, you know, the one place where we, you would think you would be safe uh, in God's house, where we praise him from church bombings to church, church shootings to uh, 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 church fires, whatever. The four girls in, in Birmingham, the black girls that died in that bombing, mm -hmm. uh, Dylan Roof killing nine black people. At some point, when do you question the hypocrisy of all of this and the constant contradictions? Because people will say, black people will say, hey, God gives man free will. You can't blame that on God. He gives man free will, okay? But those same people will also say, it's God's plan. If it's God's plan, then how can it be free will if it's already predestined? That doesn't make sense to me. And when you say it's God's plan, make it make sense. 14 kids, what was it, 19 kids, two adults got killed? Explain to me what part of the plan that is. Make that make sense to me. See. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Why you make it so complicated? Off the drain, we concentrated. I know you won't leave me hanging. Smoking weed out the container We spend cash for entertainment That's more where that came from That's all I'm saying It's me and you and we making arrangements It's you and me and we making arrangements Is it hot in here or is it just me? I'm so high in here been smoking on this weed Told him go and take a shot on three Told them drinks, it's on me. Yeah, the drinks are on me. I said, now go and take a shot on me. Only drug a bitch is on is the tree. But I last ten rounds like a freak, like a G.
Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Jalen Stevenson. This is episode 21, y'all. Smoking Sativa. I want to start off the episode, as always, as a reflection on my day. Reflection on the last couple of days since the last episode. Um, so recently, I've kind of been, you know, working, of course, grinding. You know the grind don't stop with me, y'all. You already know what time it is. Uh, hard work, dedication, sacrifice, head down, ton of vision. Put on the boots, put on your pants, put on your shirt. Tunnel vision. Get to the money, get to the bag, get to the gains. Enjoy it. Enjoy life. Enjoy the process. Enjoy the hard work. Enjoy the journey. Um, if you're not enjoying the journey, if you're not enjoying the grind, uh, you need to change your outlook on it. You need to change your perspective on the grind. Um, uh, I believe that the grind is something that you want to do. Not something that you have to do. When you, it, whenever you, whatever you grinding towards, or whenever you choose to grind towards something, it should be something that you want to do. It should be something that you want. It should be something that you dream of. It should be an aspiration. It should be um, something that you've dreamed of doing. Something that you always wanted to do. Something that you manifested. Something that you're speaking into existence. Not something that is a chore. Not something that's dragging along. Not something that you just you know quote unquote have to do. It's a job or, you know, I mean, you know, even your job, even your occupation. I mean, some of y'all don't have a control over, you know, if you like your job or not. That's okay. I mean, sometimes you got to do what you got to do. But for those out there that can't control it, you should always, like, pick a job. If you can, try to pick a job that you enjoy going to, that you don't mind going to, that you don't mind picking up overtime, you don't mind putting in the extra hours, uh, coming in late, um, excuse me, coming in early, coming in for extra shifts, um, things like that. Uh, staying late, don't uh, think jobs like that that you don't mind doing those for. I mean, uh, I'm thankful, I'm blessed enough to have one of those jobs right now, currently. Um, as of lately, man, I just been, you know me, man. I'm kind of a, I'm not gonna call myself crazy, but I have a competition problem, kind of like Jordan and. Kobe, like, 
people like that. I have I I I realize that I have a competition problem, and I have a problem with not resting and not taking rest days, quote unquote, and not like not settling. You know, I have a problem. I wouldn't call it a problem, but other people would call it a problem. You know, I just feel like that's just that's just me. I've always been that way. You know, people always tell me, "Hey, yo, Jay." Why don't you take a break? Like you all, you go to the gym every day, don't you? And I just say, yeah. I don't feel right when I'm not going to the gym. I don't feel right when I'm just laid up in the crib, laying down, watching TV all day. I just don't feel right. You know, even the people around me, even the people around me, they'd be like, "You ain't at the gym at this time." You know, you usually at the gym, and that you, all you got to say is the word. All you got to say is a word, and I'm up, perked up, ears up. I'm like a dog. Like I hear somebody coming in the door, I'm just like, oh. You know, I mean, if somebody mentioned the word gym, it's it's. It's on site. I mean, I'm kind. Of, I'm kind of like you know, psycho when it comes to, to the motivation, when it comes to drive, when it comes to passion. You know, of course I'm human, so it's days where I don't feel like going to the gym. It's days where I don't feel like you know, um, getting my ass up and working out that day. You know, I might have to work for an eight hour shift, and I don't. You know, I have the. You know, I'm human. I, I get tired. I get fatigued. You know. uh and I just like, dang man, I gotta work out tonight. Of course I'm going to work out, but it's like the it's the fact that all right, I gotta find the energy, I gotta find the motivation to work out, you know. That's not a problem for me. I don't have a problem finding the motivation to work out. I find motivation in anything. I could be I, it could be somebody on the phone I'm with and they irritate me or they're mad at me. That's motivation for me. It could be a customer I'm on the phone with trying to understand their problem and they irritate me or they they're irritated. That gives me motivation. It could be somebody I see coming in the gym every single day this week. That's motivation. It could be somebody that's overweight, that's signing up for a gym membership. That's motivation for me. It could be somebody that I'm working out with for the first time. That's motivation for me. Thing, I like, I don't know. It's like, you have to be, you know, especially over the last couple of days, I've worked out with a couple of people. Um couple guys um i just realized that you have to be born with that killer mentality y'all you have to be i feel like that killer mentality can't be taught it can't be absorbed it has to be in you it had that it has to be in your heart it has to be in your dna it has to be in your in your bloodline you have to have gotten it from you know the gutter you have to been through you have to have been through things in your life to have that type of mentality. You know, me, like I always say, I grew up in the hood. I grew up in Norfolk hood, you know what I mean? Park Place, o- Ocean View, o- OV. I grew up out there, so it's like I- I've seen things. I've, I've experienced things that not the average person have experienced. Um, my my two parents, my pops, he grew up in the hood. My mom grew up in the hood. It's, it's a different type of thing. Like I have a different type of drive in me. I play, I've been competing since I was in I can, I can remember, like, I've been competing since I was in diapers, like, I mean, I remember competing versus my uncle, playing my uncle one-on-one when I was four or five years old. Of course, he always beat me because I'm small, but it got to a point where I was so competitive. I, st- I was watching Kobe, I was watching LeBron, I was watching Shaq, I was watching Tim Duncan, Kevin Garnett back in 06, 07, 08, like, I remember these times, and I got to the age where I beat my uncle one-on-one. In the in the with the Nerf hoop in the house, like you know, I used to take them battles serious. I used to be crying when I lost. Like I I grew up 
with that type of mentality. I grew up with that hunger. I grew up with kill or be killed mentality. You know, I grew up not accepting losses. I remember my mom when I was young, I played my mom one on one. She beat me one on one in basketball. I was so I was so pissed. I was crying. I was so mad. My mom would be like, You're a sore loser. And I used to be like I used to think in my head, So? I used to think in my head, okay, I'm a sore loser. So cool, that's cool. I'd I'd be a sore loser to then accept the loss. That's just how I thought. I was six I was no five years old, six years old when this happened. And I I would never accept losses. I always used to be so pissed off. I used to always be, you know, <laughs> so mad and used to not let it go. You know, I used to be crying, not let it go. But, you know, you have to take, as you get older, you take, you, you know that, you learn that, you know, it's wins and losses. You have to accept the losses. You got to change the mindset from losses to lessons, you know, and. You got to keep that within your bloodline. You got to keep that in the back of your head. You got to make that a part of your your regimen. You got to make that part of your mentality, you know, moving forward. Especially once you get older, you get in the real world, you become an adult. You get looked at as an adult. You start to, you know, have the ability to pay bills. You have to pay for things on your own. You have to, you know, drive your own car, buy your own crib, support yourself, make your own doctor's appointment, pay for your own insurance. You know, you got to you gotta take your L's with, you know what I mean? And treat them as lessons. I'm always support you. Always be thankful and grasp your wins, of course, though. But it's the lessons that you take when you take L's that really make you who you are. And then you know, I've taken a lot of L's growing up. I took I I realize a lot of things now that I've ne- that I've never really realized when I was younger. That's always how it's been. In retrospect, I realized the way things transpired and why things transpired that way. And I've I've understood, you know, that's what made me who I am today. I mean, I think I used to always hold grudges when I was younger against whether it be my parents, whether it be my situation, whether it be, you know, school, friends, you know, uh, relationships, coaches, teammates. I always used to hold kind of grudges when I was younger. But now I always realize that, look, those type of things made me who I am today. And I think everything that I've been through, whether it be good or bad, because it made me who I am today. Um, I feel like that mentality should be spreaded around our community, especially as black people. And uh, realizing that, you know, self is more important than anything. It's more important than any entertainment. It's more important than any religion. It's more important than anything. Because without yourself, you you know, there is nothing. You understand? So always keep that in mind. You know, I've had, I got a, had a good workout in before recording this video. You know, I hit arms today. Had a good pump. Good message, good vibes, good energy, good motivation, you know, workout partner, amazing energy. Challenged me today. I challenged myself. I challenged him. Um, I challenged my inner will. Always doing it. Progressive overload is what I call it. And we will continue to become better. We will, we will continue to have um, progressive overload and keep stacking. Keep on building that pyramid. And once we reach to the point where we're at the top of the pyramid, we're going to get off that pyramid and start digging and start building another pyramid. That's always the mentality, you know what I mean? And um, Reverting back to, like, you know, the beginning clip that you heard when it surfaces to religion and thinking about religion and um, thinking about the importance of how us as black people, we always hold religion to our fondest, you know, growing up in a Christian household, growing up in a Christian family, pastors, reverends, you know, first ladies, um, uh, Baptist church, um, 
I've always like you know been around that type of stuff. I, I feel like I will always be around it because that's just how my family is. As I've always been, um, and and replicating that and reverting that to society. You know that's how we've been since the beginning of time. Since we got brought over here, we were we were structured, we were programmed, we were bamboozled, tricked, um, held against our will to revert into a certain you know religion which is christianity that was started here um for at least for us wise started here um they used this you know the bible as a toy basically as a plague to you know trick our people our ancestors rather to keep them enslaved and to keep them wishing and to keep them you know run amok of hope wishing of hope and you know keeping them at bay keeping them you know in their quote-unquote place you know and and the 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 masters would would choose one of the guys or one of the pastors one of the men to to hold congregations to hold church services after the long weeks after the long hard weeks of slavery whips change rape all types of things hanging lynchings um separation of our families being sold uh, being legally sold because you know they changed laws to make slavery legal so they had all those type of things you know we still run amok with religion you know and once the emancipation proclamation came it was more so like that was our quote-unquote status of hope our ancestor status of hope back then where they believed that a change had come and god had answered their prayers or any reality if like in the first clip um he said that, you know, if you've been praying for 400 years and life is inevitable for change. If you've been doing something for 400 years, it's just it's just inevitable for change. It's human activity. It's human evo- evolution to ch- to uh, equal change. Um, and 400 years later, we've, quote, unquote, got what we prayed for. And, and we still haven't gotten, you know, our just due. We still haven't gotten our reparations. We still haven't gotten our our respect, our dignity, our... Our, um, our tithes of time that we have did for this country. We ba- we built this country. Whether they want to talk about it or not, we built this country, whether it be through six si- all the six sides of the Rubik's Cube. You know, we may not have had a say-so in government, but it was a lot of influences throughout time, throughout history, that, that were black, that did have a say-so through, you know, government. It did have an influence through government, you understand? Like Booker T. Washington had an influence, whether he was a you know sellout or not, he had an influence on the way things were during that time. Frederick Douglass, he was the first black man with a newspaper, the North Star. Um, he had a real big influence on you know Abraham Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation. The little that the Emancipation Proclamation did do for us, it really didn't do anything but give us quote unquote hope and give us the shackles of being legally slaves. It removes that. But we were still like, you know, it was a lot of people and a lot of uh black people that were still, you know, programmed to believe in that there is no hope. There is nothing that that uh that was better out there other than being with the master, other than, you know, getting paid the coins and the, the chitlins and and the fat left over and the bones that the master was, you know, eating off of. That was they didn't think life could be any better than that. So it was a lot of people that stood there, still was quote unquote slaves, but they legally wasn't called slaves no more. It was more so sharecroppers, 
uh, things like that. That's when the Industrial Revolution started to happen within the 1900s and 1910s. You had factories, you had the cotton gin, you had the, the printing press. You had things like that starting to become invented. And you had, uh, that's when you had newspapers, you had television started to come, you had ads starting to come, you had the phone, you had the radio, excuse me, you had the telephone, you had the radio, um, you had Peanut, like things like that started to become in fruition. Started to see black authors, kind of, Frederick Douglass, um, started to see a lot of things like that, Booker T. Washington, a lot, a lot, a few black educators within, you know, you seen Madam C.J. Walker with the hair products, you know, between that time period, um, and you have to understand that within all that type of things, religion still held a big standpoint between those things because we've seen a lot of, not a lot, but a few, you know, of us being notable and being famous, having a word, having a say so in certain in certain rooms. We could step our toes in certain rooms, step our presence in certain rooms. We, st- we started to be, you know, controlled into thinking that was because of, you know, religion. That was because of our prayers. That was because of our hope. And in reality, you had to think of it like, you know, there was still more people being lynched, more people being raped, more people being killed, more families being separated, being destroyed than people that were notified, than people that was in those rooms, you understand? And it was, and the prayers, those prayers, you know, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to say, tell anybody what to do, tell anybody what to believe in, but it's just up for conversation. You know, most religious people, you know, most Christians, you can't even bring up a conversation about, oh, is this really real or why did this happen or, you know, things like that without them being offended, without them, you know, calling you sacrilegious, saying you're going to hell, all this type of stuff. But all out in all actuality, it always has to be in discussion. You know, it's, it's good to have discussions about things like this. It's good to have discussions, open-ended discussions about politics, about life, about religion, about us, about the history of this country, about the brainwashing. You know, you gotta you have to have comf- you have to have conversations that are warranted, you know, for debate and warranted for other people's opinions. That's how you grow as people, you know. Understanding other people's perspective, understanding other people's sides. Yep. Excuse me, understanding what makes sense. Common sense. You know, it's just it's a lot of things that go into being controlled, you know. I'm not one to tell anybody what to do. I'm not one to try to control anybody and tell them what to think. I'm just bringing these facts to you and I'm just bringing these, you know, ideas to you guys. This perspective that I have. Like, it's a lot of things like, you know, uh, religion is one of them. Uh, The military is one of them as well that I feel, you know, I feel like this, this type of thinking or saying rather should be put up in the air and should be thought about more, especially towards us black people. I feel like, you know, I I had a a real, you know, um, short period of time where I thought about joining the military. You know, I was fresh out of high school. I didn't know if I was really going to college, you know, with the whole financial aid, being in debt. I didn't know if I was really going to be in college or, you know, make it in college. So, I, you know, as an alternative, I didn't want to be poor. I didn't want to be, you know, stuck. I didn't want to be complacent. I didn't want to be stuck in mud. So I just thought about, you know, military. That's an easy place. That's an easy way I get money. You know, it's an easy way. If I want to go to school, I can go to school, blah, blah, blah. You know, health benefits, blah, blah, blah. Typically how most people think when they're trying to join the military. That's what they think about. That's what they envision. That's what they do it for. 
But in the grand scheme of things, look at the history behind the military. Look at us as a people. Let's look, let's look at us as a race. Let's look at us as black people. Let's look at our side of the military. Let's look at the history of it, right? So you have the Civil War. Of course, we were in the front of it. We It was the Union versus the Confederate. Of course, we were in the front of it. We were the the first people that, you know, were in line of it. We died first. We put our life on the line first. Um, but that would never, ever get, like, you know, put on public display. That will never, ever be in the forefront of the newspaper. That will never be in the forefront of the documentary, you know. It would be in the backside. It would be an afterthought. It would be a subtitle. But we were the first ones, you know, to put our bloodshed on this country. Um, and we continued to do that through generations, through generations, you know, through the Civil War, through World War One through World War II, through the Vietnam War, um, especially through Civil War, through World War II, when there was still segregation, when there was still discrimination, when there was still, you know, um, just blatant disrespect, blatant racism. Um, but specifically, I can think of one just off the top of my head, you know, Jesse Owens. Um, Jesse Owens, if y'all don't know Jesse Owens, he was, a, um, he, he was at the Olympics in World War II. Well, during right before World War Two, when Hitler was still at his peak, um, he he won the gold medal. He won like four. He won four gold medals in the Olympics in um, nineteen thirty six, I believe. And he, but when he came home, he still, as an Olympic gold medalist, fight for this country in the midst of Adolf Hitler's peak. Um, with the concentration camps and the genocide and everything like that, Nazis, he was still uh, racially discriminated. He was still had to come in the back of hotels. He still had to enter the back of restaurants. He still had to. You know, drink from colored water fountains. He wasn't. He didn't get his uh just due with the military. He didn't get his just due. Of course, he got his just due from us as black people because you know, we love us some sports. We love Joe Lewis. We love Jesse Owens. We love us, some, you know, Muhammad Ali. We love Bill Russell, Wilt Chamberlain, especially during those times. We love those type of guys. You know, we're gonna we're gonna reign. We're gonna make them kings. We're gonna hold them to to the respect that they deserve. But as a totality, as a, as a nation. Of the society, they didn't. They still was treated like regular, you know, black people. They were still treated like they didn't fight for us, like they didn't take a risk, you know. And it was that was a continuation throughout generation throughout generation before you know, there was a a switch in, you know, black some black people's mentality where you had the people like Malcolm X, you had people like you know the Nation of Islam, you had the people like. Um, Black Panthers, you know, you had the people like uh, Louis Farrakhan, even though he's kind of skeptical a little bit. You had people like that, uh, that, oh, Martin Luther King as well, that were, that had the balls, that had the audacity, that had the, you know, the heart to tell it like it is, and especially Malcolm X, you know, to tell it like it is and to speak the truth. And that was like, that was a, a turning point within our our history, our culture, society's culture, where um, nobody was used to that. They never heard black people, or they never heard a black man, a black man, say these type of things, um, ever. And especially on the media side, where they had cameras, they had TV, they had radio during this time, 1950s, 1960s, 1940s. Uh, they had a lot of things, you know, within their circle. They had a lot of um, uh, t- 
time to like you know digest their plan you know their plan against us you know that's where they you know killed our black leaders they you know discriminated our black leaders they put them under the rug you know they didn't get their support they didn't get their ring of honor they didn't get they just do until probably after they died that's when you see people so you notice when you notice uh they don't most of us our heroes didn't get their support and didn't get their just due until after they was until after their demise like you notice people didn't like or they people didn't love Muhammad Ali until after he couldn't talk until after he had Parkinson's and he couldn't talk well people didn't like Martin Luther King until after he died that's when you got streets named after him that's why you got Martin Luther King Day that's when you get the I have a dream you know all that type of stuff the romance the statue um, those type of things, the museums, Malcolm X, you know, they complete, they completely discriminated Malcolm X. They completely destroyed. They don't even talk about him really no more. Really. They try, they try to shadow ban, they basically shadow ban Malcolm X from society. But now you see people making documentaries, you know, and of course you have the other side, the negative side. You have people making documentaries about the conversations, the wiretaps of Malcolm X, you know, uh, and Martin Luther King, they try, you know, the whole thing with my uh Martin Luther King with his with mistresses and talking about other type of things and you know they're trying to destroy Martin Luther King they're trying to, they're trying to destroy us as well it's two sides to it you understand it's two sides to the agenda they're trying to play and it's up to us to understand the bigger picture it's up to us to understand the real message the real thing that's going on because these are human beings you understand nobody's perfect you know so we have to understand the the reality. We have to understand the inner meaning, the intertwining between the stories of and the messages between these speeches, between the time that they had on this earth, and between the time that you know that they had left. You know the knowledge that they gave with the, with the time they had here, and uh, we had to take it for, have to take it for what it was and what it is at face value because we can't go back in time can't change anything we have to just go forward and revise things we have to excuse not revise things but we have to look at the drawing board go back to the drawing board and understand um really understand the history do our homework and keep it at bay you know uh i had a question where it was it was stating you know how long has there been police brutality uh, is it possible that the history of black hatred has been overlooked? Uh, and is the war still going on? Uh, man, so the first question, how long has the has there been police brutality? Um, To answer that question, there has been police brutality since the beginning of time. Okay, so the so in the beginning, the police were created to catch runaway slaves. Um, they were... They weren't even really called the police. They were called, you know, the Ku Klux Klan. That was kind of the police back then. You know, they rode on horses back then before there was cars. You know, they burnt crosses on people's yard right after the Emancipation Proclamation when people, the Great Migration, where it started, you know, travel, you know, black families started to have their own sharecropping businesses, started to have their own house. You know, you still had the Ku Klux Klan coming to people's houses, taking their fathers from the home. You know, that's how Malcolm X's father got killed. Um, they took his father out of his home. And they completely they, they nailed him to the tri- to the uh they uh tied him up on the train tracks and you already know that sto- you already know what that ended up at being you know the train comes basically like a guillotine slices his head boom dead that's basically what they did to Michael Max's father and they did that to a lot of our fathers and mothers um 
and that was quote unquote the police. They caught they caught one away slaves. Of course, you know what they did with those people. They hung them. They lynched them. Uh, they put them in jail. They they tortured them, raped them, uh, removed them from their families. Um, totally, you know, tortured them. Things like that. Things that we'll never know. Things that we that they that completely goes under the rug. You know, you have you have to understand what it comes to. Like you know, white people are the most evil. I'm sorry to say this, but you just got to keep it a buck with the history of this country. White people are the most, are the original gangsters. They are the original um, evil. You know, they designed all this. They designed the amendments. They designed the Bill of Rights. They designed this country. They took over this country. They We wasn't, we didn't have nothing to do with this stuff. You know, quote unquote, Christopher Columbus, white, European. You know, what did he do? Exactly. So, White people are the originators of war. They are. So, you have to understand that they are the most violent people, you know, that walk the earth. It's not black people. Like, they try to make it perceived as, you know, understand. They not, you know, they try to sweep it under the rug, the truth. But if you look at the, at the history of it, who, who started all these wars? Exactly. Um. Not to drift off from it, but yeah, that's how the police, you know, was created. And of course, there will always be police brutality. You know, the FBI is controlled by who? The mafia, the government, all tied into one. The government and the mafia have mo- have ties together. It's been presidents, continuous presidents. It's been continuous politicians. It's been continuous state politicians that have mob ties. So they all tied into one to this day. So you have to keep that in mind. Uh, and that trickles down to the police department. That trickles down to the FBI. That, that means you know J. Edgar Hoover, War on Drugs, Just Say No, Ronald Reagan, Reaganomics, all that type of stuff. John F. Kennedy, Richard Nixon, Watergate. You have to think about these type of things. Woodrow Wilson, Theodore Roosevelt, World War Two, Statlin, all that type of stuff. Hitler, the founding four. You know. You got you got to do your research and understand that. Those things were set in stone are and are set in stone. That's part of history. That's in our textbooks. Um, so you have to understand that all that equals, you know, control. So the police will always, you know, there'll always be police brutality. There's been police brutality since the beginning of time, since the beginning of, you know, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, basically. When they basically allowed us, you know, the Great Migration, they allowed us to kind of exit, have the opportunity to exit and create our own kind of life. Um, and that's where the police was created during those times. Um, is it possible that the history of black hatred has been overlooked? <sighs> of course it's possible that the history of black hatred has been overlooked. Of course. They put it on. I mean, you got to think about it. And um, we don't really get, we don't really have that discussion unless, you know, there's a mass shooting, unless kids die, unless somebody black dies from the police. You know, other than that, other, we don't have a discussion. We don't have a discussion unless death is involved. And by that time, isn't it too late? Or somebody loses a limb or somebody can't speak anymore. Somebody is a vegetable brain dead, basically, right? That's when we have the discussions. Of course, so of course it's overlooked. Of course, it, it'll continue to be overlooked. I told you about the cycle. I told you about how, you know... Um, most of the cycle will be continue to be overstated, overlooked, um, put under the rug, and completely ignored. 
you know, at per usual, it's a, it's an ongoing battle. It's an ongoing debate. It's an on. It's not even a debate. It's just an ongoing topic, that, of course, doesn't get its just due in the end. Doesn't get enough praise. Doesn't get enough notice, because we don't control. Excuse me. We don't control the media. We don't control. We can't. We we don't have control over the higher power. We don't have control over the media. We don't have control over you know the the third eye of this country. You understand? We don't have control over public perception. Like majority control over public perception. We can have control over public perception within ourselves, within our communities, within us, within our knowledge. We can do our own research because it's out there. Because we have the opportunity to read books, watch videos, watch documentaries, learn. And, you know, we have that opportunity now. But we, as you put us in 1980, 1990, 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, you had to dig. You had to really dig. You had to read books. You had to, you know, look at the fine print, read documents, you know, do your history, ask questions. Now you can just hop on YouTube, hop on Google and just search things now. So really there's no, it's no um, excuse really to not know and understand your, your history and understand where you come from, understand you know, why things the way they are and, you know, have an idea, have, have some, have some dignity within it, you know, like I said, with the cycle, it's like, it goes from a mass shooting, a child, uh, a school shooting, a, a police uh, killing or something like that, a black, black, whatever you want to call it, a black person being killed by the police, quote unquote, police brutality, which it's always been, it's not even police brutality at this point. It's, it's like the police is part of them. It's their brutality. It's, it's it's a lifelong thing that's been going on for throughout throughout our ancestors for the last four or five hundred years we've been held hostage in this country. If you think about it. You know, so it goes from a mass shooting to media extravaganza to thoughts and prayers to social media debates to no one actually does anything, no action, and then it goes back to normal. It's the same cycle. So, you know, to answer that of course, it's being overlooked. It'll always be, I can say it'll always be overlooked because with time, that will become, you know, evolution, that will become change. If you wait enough, if generations pass enough, it will become time eventually. You got to think about it. It took 400 years for them to, quote unquote, think about removing a little bit of the shackles. Even though we were still shackled, we couldn't vote, we didn't have no say so. We were, we were worth three, the men were worth three fifths of the population. Women wasn't even counted as a as part of the population, especially black women wasn't even counted as part of the population. They couldn't vote. It was hard for us to vote. Even when when they made it an uh, amendment for us to vote, we still couldn't. You know the vote literacy test. They made it impossible for us to have that. You know segregation, color only, all that type of things. We had to sit in the back of the bus. We had to let get up if we tired. We had to get up and let the white man sit down. We had to stand up. It's things like that. You know, we had to watch our back when the police drive past. You know what I mean? It's still, it's all, it's, those type of things still happen today. It's just not as blatant. It's more modern. You know, you got to think about it. When they had, when they created cars and they had an industrial revolution, that was a big standing point. Think about the industrial revolution. That was the, um, the, the pivotal standpoint to where we are today. That's when you had, they went from horses. You got to think about it. They always thought about that we was going to never have, you know, we was always going to ride horses. But but then they got to the point where, okay, the Industrial Revolution happened. Okay, cars. You have cars. You have trains. You have factories. You have cotton gins. You don't really need slaves really to get cotton to make mass production. You understand? 
So they started, you know, coming up with ways to program us in different type of ways. They started coming up with ways to control us in different ways. You understand? And here we are today. You know, they went from dirt. They went from dirt roads to now we have roads. We have cars. We have, you know, self-driving cars now. So it's kind of like we we're moving on to the next part of them trying to control us. Them trying to you know switch the narrative, those type of things, or control the narrative. Excuse me. You know, keep that in mind. Um, is the war still going on? Of course it's still going on. The war, of course, will always continue to go on. It's going to always be us versus them because that's just that's just what's the origin of everything. You know, that's, you know, in the grand scheme of things, that's the origin of everything. You know, you do have some of, I'm not saying all white people are bad. Of course not, especially not in this day and age. Because racism isn't you're not born like that. You're you're taught racism. So it's a lot of people it's a lot of white people in this in this day and age that are for us, that, that are that do want to see us succeed. And I'm all for those people that 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 are white that want to see us succeed and want us to, you know, have equal rights, have us just do. I I understand that. But um the opposite of that, the racist people outweigh the good people. So I focus on the good people, uh, the uh, racist people and understand that the racist people are the ones controlling the seats. The racist people are the ones that's in the political seats or in the state representative seats that control this shit, that control the oil, that control the gas, or excuse me, that control the, uh, the ships. They control all this stuff. They have the button to push all this stuff. So I'm going to focus on them. Understand? And that, and until there is, I hope, well, use the word hope, there needs to be um, change. There needs to be, of course, we always say that. We always say things. We already know what needs to happen. We know what's right from wrong. We know this already. But I just personally feel like there will always be an ongoing war because not only is it a war against them, it's a war against us because we can't seem to understand the bigger picture within, uh, within ourselves. You know, black on black crime, you know, robbing each other. It's just we have to understand the bigger picture. And until we realize that they're putting us against each other, there will always be a war going on about that. You know what I mean? And it's deeper than what it seems, man. It, it really is. And it's. I don't want to say it's sad, but it's it's more so just like a a grips of reality. You know, it is what it is. Like you got to do your part, part of the Rubik's cube. You got to understand your part of the Rubik's cube. You understand how can you affect it? You understand? Um, and I wanted to like kind of make a segue, switch the subject a little bit. You know what I mean, um, talk about men. Uh, I came across this video today. To my fellas, talking about y'all. Um, to my ladies as well, my women out there, it's up for a discussion. Just wanted to bring this up into the air. Something that you could take home with you or while you're listening, driving, whatever you're doing right now. Uh, think about um, this. Um, men not being able to be emotional in relationships. Um, I saw this today on a podcast, I was listening to a podcast the other day, and they, they talked about this, not being, men not being able to be emotional in relationships, not having that level of vulnerability, having, 
you know what I mean, relationships, and they ask why men don't cry often, like in front of people or in front of their 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 partner. And it's 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 basically like if you looked at if you like basically if you look if if men like you know if we cry or whatever and all that type of stuff, it's not the fact that we don't cry, we can't cry. It's just the fact that if we do cry, we're gonna be looked at as soft. We're gonna be looked at as, um, you know, overly emotional. We're not gonna get the respect that we deserve. And and on the other side of that, if we are emotional, we feel it's nine times out of ten. Um, it's gonna be used against us in the long run, especially with women. It's gonna be used against us in the long run. And I personally can attest to this. I can personally attest to this before because I've cried for in some some of my relationships, you know, whether it be forced or just you know accidental. I cried in in some of my relationships, like in front of some of my partners, and you know, in later terms, it always was used against me, whether it be an argument or whatever. It always be used against me in the long run. That's another reason why men don't. Open up their vulnerability. That's another reason why men don't particularly cry in front of their partners or, like, you know, um, become vulnerable in front of their partners. That's really just the midst of it. That's what one of the women said in the video on the podcast. She was basically like, she asked the question why men don't. uh, She's basically like, how do men uh, keep their emotions intact? How come they don't cry as much? And then the guys was like, because you're going to use it against us. She was like, yeah, you're right. We're going to use it against you. Like, she said that. And then everybody was like, oh, exactly. That's the reason why we don't do it. And she was basically like, no, I'm asking how do y'all have your emotions intact? And basically, it was just like, man, it's just a respect thing. We don't, you know what I mean? We're not going to sit here and be crying around everybody. You know what I mean? We're looked at as leaders. We're looked at as rocks. we looked at as hardcore. We have to have that on that tough guy face, that, that macho mentality. Keep our head down, lunch pail. That's basically the answer they gave. And I just personally feel like if you're, if you're involved with a person and you're in a relationship with a person that, that you feel comfortable around and you feel uh, safe around with being emotional, being vulnerable... I'm not going to say that's beta or anything. I'm not even going to say that at all. That's not That's not even what I'm getting at at all because I've done this before plenty of times. I don't have a problem with doing it when it's something, somebody that I'm comfortable with and somebody that, you know, that I feel won't judge me. Um, it's up to you, man. You're the man. You make your own decisions. You make the final decision for yourself, and it's up to you. You just can't expect. You can't really be shocked if it's used against you. You just got to take it and run with it. You got to take it like a man. You feel me? There ain't nothing wrong with that, in my opinion. Um, it's more so... Um, you just got to build that trust. You got to build that respect, that loyalty within you and your partner to where y'all both can share that vulnerability. But at the end of the day, you know, it's a good feeling to be able to be vulnerable with your partner. And to be able to share things, you know, that you had never thought that you would share with anybody with your partner, certain type of feelings and opening up and looking at it as therapy, looking at it as therapeutic with your partner. It's really it's a real good feeling to to have that, you understand? And I feel like more guys should if you do have that person, you know, in your life, um, should open up a little bit, you know. 
loosen up your shoulders a little bit loosen up a little bit you know express things because a lot of because you know men we are the leaders of this suicide thing we do have the highest suicide rate uh within men you know within the two genders we do have the highest suicide rate so that's a, that's a big reason why because they they try to live up to the certain standard they try to be so macho they be holding in things that's why they hold in things so much and then they pop like a balloon and they wind up killing the whole family they wind up doing all types of shit killing themselves it's like be open be willing to be vulnerable it's okay you know what i mean it don't matter everybody's going to be judged whether it's good or bad everybody's going to be judged everybody nowadays especially it's going to be it's going to be a, a critic so don't be afraid to you know um Express yourself. Don't be afraid to let your ideas out there. Don't be afraid to be, you know, vulnerable. And, you know, vulnerable for the right reasons, of course. I ain't saying being a complete simp, but, like, express yourself. Express your pain. Be therapeutic. Use things as uh, as therapy to express yourself. Express your story. I mean, you know. Yeah, man. I'd like to thank y'all for listening to this episode. I'd like to thank y'all for tuning in with me. And for, you know... Supporting me as always. Love y'all. Um, stay tuned for the quarter of the day at the end of the podcast. Of course, we do this every single episode. Um, thank y'all, man. I love y'all. See y'all on Tuesday next week. Peace out. Love y'all. To understand this, you have to go back to what young brother here referred to as the house Negro and the field Negro back during slavery. There was two kinds of slaves. There was the house Negro and the field Negro. The house Negro, they lived in the house with master. They dressed pretty good. They ate good because they ate his food. But he left. (laughs) They lived in the attic or the basement, but still they lived near their master. And they loved their master more than the master loved himself. They They would give their life to save their master's house quicker than the master would. The house Negro, if the master said, we got a good house here, the house Negro say, yeah, we got a good house here. Whenever the master said we, he said we. That's how you can tell a house Negro. If the master's, if the master's house caught on fire, the house Negro would fight harder to put the blaze out than the master would. If the master got sick, the house Negro would say, what's the matter, boss? We sick. We sick. <laughs> he identified himself with his master more than his master identified with himself. And if you came to the house Negro and said, let's run away, let's escape, let's separate, that house Negro would look at you and say, man, you crazy. What you mean separate? Where is there a better house than this? Where can I wear better clothes than this? Where can I eat better food than this? That was that house Negro. In those days, he was called a house nigger. And that's what we call him today because we still got some house niggers running around here. modern house Negro loves his master. He wants to live near him. He'll pay three times as much as the house is worth just to live near his master. And then brag about, I'm the only Negro out here.
the only one on my job. I'm the only one in this school, you nothing but a house Negro. And if someone come to you right now and say, let's separate, you say the same thing that the house Negro said on the plantation. What you mean separate? From America? This good white man? Where you gonna get a better job than you get here? I mean, this is what you say. I, I ain't left nothing in Africa. That's what you say. Why you left your mind in Africa. On that same plantation, there was the field Negro. The field Negro, those were the masses. There was always more Negroes in the field than there was Negroes in the house. The Negro in the field caught hell. He ate leftovers. In the house, they ate high up on the hull. The Negro in the field didn't get nothing but what was left of the insides of the hog. They call them chitlins nowadays. In those days, they call them what they were, guts. That's what you were, a gut eater. And some of you are all still gut eaters. Negro was beaten from morning till night. He lived in a shack, in a hut. He wore cast off clothes and he hated his master. I say he hated his master. He was intelligent. That house Negro loved his master. But that field Negro, remember, they were in the majority and they hated his master. When the house caught on fire, he didn't try and put it out. That field Negro prayed for a wind, <laughs> for a breeze. When the master got sick, the field Negro prayed that he died. If someone come to the field Negro and said, let's separate, let's run, he didn't say, where are we going? He said, any place is better than here. field Negroes in America today. I'm a field Negro. The masses are the field Negroes. When they see this man's house on fire, you don't hear these little Negroes talking about our government is in trouble. They say the government is in trouble. Imagine a Negro, our government, I even heard one say, our astronauts, they won't even let him near the plant. And our astronauts, our Navy, that's a Negro that's out of his mind. That's a Negro that's out of his mind. Just as the slave master in that day used Tom, the house Negro, to keep the field Negroes in check, the same old slave master today has Negroes who are nothing but modern Uncle Toms, 20th century Uncle Toms, 
to keep you and me in check, keep us under control, keep us passive and peaceful and nonviolent. That's Tom making you nonviolent. It's like when you go to the dentist and the man is going to take your tooth. You're going to fight him when he starts pulling. So they squirt some stuff in your jaw called Novocaine to make you think they're not doing anything to you. So you sit there and curse, you got all that Novocaine in your jaw, you suffer peacefully. <laughs> Blood running all down your jaw. And you don't know what's happening. Cause someone has taught you to suffer peacefully. The white man do the same thing to you in the street. When he gonna want to put knots on your head and take advantage of you and don't have to be afraid of you fighting back. To keep you from fighting back, he get these old religious Uncle Toms to teach you and me that just like Novocaine, suffer peacefully. Don't stop suffering, just suffer peacefully. As Reverend Cleve pointed out, let your blood flow in the streets. This is a shame. 